Will you please turn in your Bibles to Romans 6, Romans chapter 6. And the guys have some Bibles. They're going to make their way toward the back. And if you need a Bible, get their attention. And those are marked at Romans chapter 6 for you. We're going to look briefly at a few of the verses in that chapter, about two-thirds in to our message. But I have a number of introductory and teaching comments to make before we look at Romans 6. Author and pastor Colin Smith gives the illustration of three couples who meet and become good friends in college. After they graduate, they're going to move and settle into different parts of the country, but they agree that they're going to meet after 25 years, and when they do meet, they're going to tell the truth about what's going on with their lives. 25 years later, the big day comes. As they arrive at the agreed location, the first thing they notice about each other is the graying hair and the extra pounds around the middle. But after a good meal, they settle down to hear the truth about each other's lives. Pete and Mary go first. The others had noticed that they had arrived separately, and they wondered why. We moved in together after college, says Pete. We decided that marriage wasn't for us, but we wanted to be together, so we decided to see how things would work out. The truth is, we got on each other's nerves. And in the end, we decided we couldn't live together and decided to go our separate ways about 10 years ago. Then it was Tom and Sandra's turn. They had had a long discussion on the way down in the car about what they would say. We agreed 25 years ago that we'd tell the truth today, said Sandra. What are we going to say? And Sandra tells the others about how they were married soon after college And how they now have a beautiful home and three fine children who've all graduated from the same college and have excellent jobs. Everything seems so good, says Sandra, but the truth is, it isn't. There's no doubt about our commitment, but I feel there's a whole dimension missing. I feel as if our marriage is an empty shell. When she finishes, she looks up hesitantly at Tom, and Tom looks up at her, and their eyes meet, and Tom says, that's the truth. Then it's Dave and Linda's turn. Truth is, says Linda, we were married right after college and we've had our struggles. We had three kids close together. I don't know what we were thinking. Money was tight and there were times when I thought we were going to go crazy. And I've had a real problem with anger, says Dave, chipping in. At times, that's put a heavy strain on our relationship. But we've weathered some pretty heavy storms over the years. And the truth is, we've become closer and closer. We promised to tell the truth today, and I have to say that the truth is that we're closer now than we have been at any other time in our lives. Now, there you have three relationships, one that's like an open door with no secure commitment, the couple that was living together, and then one that's committed but is a dimension short, and it lacks life and it lacks love, and one that is a growing union. Now, which of these would you say is a description of your relationship with the Lord? Or perhaps better, which of these three kinds of relationship would you want God to have with you? An open door of non-commitment, an empty shell that lacks life and love, or a growing union? Well, it's obvious that we can't have an open door relationship with God because he doesn't enter that kind of relationship. Throughout the Bible, we see God initiating relationships with people. And he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. 
And though, and though great strain may be brought on that relationship God makes with his people, God never goes back on his commitment to them. There is no open door experimental relationship that God will enter into with you. And we should all be extremely thankful that there will never come a time when God will tire of us. Where God will just find me too irritating and turn away from me and leave me abandoned in the end. That will never happen because open door relationships are contrary to God's nature. Instead, God offers to bring us into a relationship that's a binding agreement, a solemn promise, a commitment. But the second couple, Tom and Sandra, had a committed, secure relationship. But that's all they had. And God does not want to bring us into that kind of relationship either. Because that's also short of his purpose for us in the Lord Jesus. God not only establishes relationships that are secure commitments with his people, but he also fills the life of his people with his love. He's not only the God of covenant, he's the God of covenant love. He has no uncommitted love and he has no unloving commitments. And that's why in the Bible, a good growing marriage is a beautiful picture of the kind of relationship that God wants to establish with you through Jesus Christ. If you think about it, a good growing marriage is one that is both legal on the one hand and relational on the other. It's both secure and at the same time, it's close and it's intimate. And God wants to bring us into a deep relationship of covenant love in which we have the deep security of knowing he's never going to leave us. And at the same time, the deep intimacy of actually sharing his life. And all of that vital life-giving and life-living aspect of our relationship with God is all part of this multifaceted jewel that we call the gospel. Now, we've been defining the gospel for you for several weeks now. As we've been doing this little mini-series looking at the various aspects of what comprise the gospel. And we've had for you, as we do today, an insert in your program. I encourage you to take that out. And you see at the top there, and you see on the screen as well, the definition of the gospel as the glorious message that God's grace has overcome our sin through the life, death, and resurrection of his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And thus far, we have seen four of the six aspects of this jewel of the gospel. And those also are on that insert and also on your, on your screen. Now, we've seen effectual call, and we've seen regeneration, and we've seen justification, and we've seen adoption. But if the gospel stops at these, then this is what we would have. We would have commitment on the part of God toward us, but the life of that relationship could be stale and cold. If all we have is the first four, then we've got indeed God's commitment. But what kind of life... And what kind of love do we have in that relationship? And I say that because you see the first four of these are all things that God does unilaterally. With the effectual call, the first of those four, God opens our minds and our ears so that we hear the call of the gospel in a way that we never had before. And so we say there in the handout that he then delivers us from the persuasion of sin and gives us a new perspective. In regeneration, God breathes spiritual life into our spiritually dead souls, and he gives us a new heart. And in that third aspect, justification, 
God, the holy, righteous judge, looks at our sinfulness and he cannot violate the law. That law is his own law. And he can't simply say, it's okay, I'll overlook it. That would violate his holy character. And so God does for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And God comes to earth and he lives the life that we should have lived. And he dies the death that we deserved so that now the demands of God's holy justice are satisfied, but they're not satisfied by us, but rather by God the Son, Jesus Christ. And on the basis of the person and work of Jesus Christ, God can then declare us righteous, even though we still struggle with sin. He justifies us, looking at us not through our sin, but through the righteousness of Jesus, so that we have, as we say in the handout, a new record before God. And then, as we saw last week, God brings us into his household with the intention that we're going to live as sons and daughters of God. No longer separated from God because of our sin, but he's become our father and we're adopted into his family. Now, all of those whom God gives this new perspective and this new heart, all of them respond to God's initiative by believing in Jesus when they hear the gospel and in turn then... Numbers 3 and 4 happen. They are justified and they are adopted. So in order to be justified and adopted, we play a role in that. We participate in what God is doing. But please note this. We participate, but that's not the same as cooperating. We participate, but we don't cooperate. You say, okay, it's early. I had to shovel my walk. I had to get all the snow off my car, and you're now going to give, you're now going to slice the bologna that thin. The difference between participating and cooperating, I am because it's an important distinction, so stay with me, please. What's the difference between those, participate and cooperate? The difference is that one involves work and the other does not. Those that God makes spiritually alive in calling and regeneration, are justified and adopted when they express faith. That is, they believe in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice that participation is believing. We do not work for it. That's our part. That's our participation. We believe. And we believe it's Jesus who has done the work for our justification and our adoption. That's how we participate in those. But to operate means to work, to exert energy. To cooperate means that God does some work and we do some work. Now, while we participate in justification and adoption by believing, we're actually co-workers with God in the fifth aspect of the gospel that you see on your outline and on the screen called sanctification. We cooperate. There is work that we do in the sanctification process with the work that God does. Now remember this, friends. God doesn't just want a relationship of commitment, a legal transaction in which he declares us righteous, but we don't grow into a loving relationship with him. And that's why God does not stop with those first four aspects of the gospel, but rather he moves to the fifth aspect, and he works to sanctify us. Now what is that then? What is sanctification? Well, you can't do much better than the Westminster Catechism, which defines sanctification as you see on the screen. 
It is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Sanctification is God enabling, God working in us, enabling us more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. And furthermore, according to Scripture, sanctification is God's will for all of his people. First Thessalonians says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. Now that word sanctified in Scripture means to be made holy, to be set apart. So in sanctification, we are increasingly day by day set apart from sin and to righteousness. And God is at work in that. But the Bible says we have work to do in that. That we cooperate with God in the work of sanctification. He enables us and then we and then we work. And so you have passages like Philippians chapter 2. As you have always obeyed, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Let me just stop there. Work out your salvation. It would be very different if that passage said work for your salvation, wouldn't it? doesn't say that. Work outwardly, now manifest, evidence, the inward reality that God has made possible by the work that he has done in calling us and regenerating us and justifying us and adopting us. Now, work that out with fear and trembling for, because it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now, notice, God is working, God works in you. But God works in you for you to will and to act. So you see the cooperating there. And then you see it as well in Colossians 1.29. Where Paul, who wrote it, says, I strenuously contend. Some translations say, I labor. With all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Again, Christ is working in me. But I labor. I strenuously contend, he says here in Colossians 1.29. So you see that some aspects of our salvation, our deliverance that comes through the gospel, some of those are working alone. Fancy term for that you'll see sometimes is those are monergistic. Mono means single or one. And the only one exerting the energy, mono, is, is, is singular, mono, that's God, monergistic. In those aspects, those first four aspects of the gospel, it is God who does that work. They're, they're monergistic, while sanctification is synergistic. That is, God works, and we work together with God. Now, why? Why does God do some of these unilaterally, and in sanctification, we work with him? Well, this corresponds to our abilities before and after God saves us. We're going to see in just a moment that the truth is, before God does his work on us, we are lifeless spiritually to do any work at all. We couldn't cooperate with God. And so here's the situation with humanity. Before the fall, our first parents, Adam and Eve. Before the fall, here was their ability. They were able to sin, but they were also able not to sin. 
Able to sin and able not to sin. That was before the entrance of sin. But then, after the entrance of sin, after the fall, this is the condition of Adam and Eve and all of their children, all humanity. Notice this, not able not to sin. I'm not able to do anything but sin naturally as I come into this world as a child of Adam. I'm not able not to sin. I have no ability not to sin. We are slaves to to sin when we come into this world. And by nature. So at this point, all humanity, everyone who comes into the world does so with a sin nature. And before God does anything to change us, we're dead in sin and unable to respond to God's call. But thankfully, God gives us ability that we did not have in the first two aspects of the gospel, in calling and in regeneration. And he gives us a record and position that we simply could not achieve. And so the situation dramatically changes then. There is what humanity was before sin, before the fall. There is what all humanity became after the fall, not able not to sin. But then after God does this work on those that he moves upon, then here's our condition again. After salvation We are able to sin and able not to sin. That's you. If you've come to Christ, that's me. I'm able to sin. I still do. But because God has done and is doing this work in me, I am also able not to sin. It is not like before I came to Christ when I was only able to sin and not able not to sin. Now I can sin or not. And so the question then for those who have come to Christ and in whom he works and we are to then respond to that work by our work. The question for us is, how shall we then live? How am I going to live now that I have come to to Jesus? Well, God has guaranteed, God has guaranteed, we will see next week in the final aspect of the gospel. That we will, all who have genuinely come to him, will increasingly subdue sin in sanctification. Next week, we're going to see the last of the six items you see on your sheet is glorification. That's a blessed time when we will not be able to sin. And so that's the fourth and final condition that humanity can be in. Call it afterlife, the afterlife for the Christian. And won't that be a wonderful time? Not able to sin. But in the meantime, those who have come to Christ are able to sin But because of the power that he has given us, we are able not to sin as well. And God does this work that he has begun in calling and regenerating and in justifying and adopting. He does this work in his people. Going all the way back to the first part of your Bible, Leviticus says, Consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord, notice, who makes you holy. God makes us holy, and yet we've also seen the Bible's quite clear and emphatic that sanctification is something we cooperate in, that it's something we strive and work with God in as we kill sin and as we live increasingly righteous lives. This is also seen in the fact that God gives commands of his people to obey, and he expects, because he knows, that we have the ability to do so, because he's the one who's given us that. Ability. So he gives his people, he gives us commands to obey, but he's also given us 
the ability to carry it out. You may recall that some of the letters in your New Testament are divided into two major sections. The first section is about who we are in Christ. And then the second section is what we're to do because of who we are. So Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, and Colossians, those are all examples of letters written by Paul who are laid out with those two major sections. In the first part, he tells you all that God has done for us and what our identity is in Christ. And then based upon that, in the second part, he says, this is what you're to do. This is what you're to carry out. Here are commands for you to obey. So the first portion is about the gospel and our standing and our new position before God. That is, those first four things on your insert. But the next portion of those letters is a call and a command to live consistent with who we are. The Bible gives us these commands because although sanctification is inevitable in God's people, it's inevitable, it's not automatic. It's inevitable, but not automatic. That is... We cooperate. We're not on autopilot. The first four things, we don't do any work. But now in sanctification, we do work. It's not then autopilot. Rather, we are involved and we are working in it. And it will happen, but it involves work. It doesn't just happen. Instead, it's achieved by obeying God's commands and in confronting sin between brothers and sisters and in counsel and in confession and in being in church, and in reading your Bible, and in praying, and in talking with one another about the good news of the gospel and the things that God is doing in our lives and helping one another and encouraging and being encouraged. It's, to put it another way, the hard slog of the Christian life. The disciplines of the Christian life. But there are people who think that sanctification is just like justification and adoption. The sanctification is something that God does unilaterally without our cooperation. I'm going to show you, at least I'm going to show you one person who believes that in in our day. But first I want to tell you what the the danger of that is. Failure to see that our Christian growth is, is synergistic. That is, it involves God's work and it involves our work. Failure to see that will result in one of two errors depending on your personality and your background. You either think you have nothing to do and you become what one author calls God's vacationer. (laughs) Cool. Autopilot. So Jesus has called me and regenerated me and justified me and adopted me. And now Jesus is sanctifying me and I'm just sliding down the hill until I arrive at the at the destination. So I'm sort of God's vacationer or. Depending on your personality and background, you'll be convinced it all depends on you and you'll become what that author calls a mini small messiah. If you think God does it all without your cooperation, you will be a spiritual pacifist. If you think it's all on you after you're saved, you'll be a spiritual activist. And you hear the voice of the spiritual activist when someone's continually recounting what they've done or stayed away from in order to be more holy. You hear the pacifist in popular statements like let go and let God. Now, if by let go and let God we mean we need to stop trying to control our lives and trust in God's sovereignty, then that's all good. 
But in history, that phrase, let go and let God, has meant being passive in regards to spiritual growth. And we actually have present day examples of this. Jesus plus nothing equals everything is a very cool title for a book that Tully and Chavidian came out with a few years ago. But though it's a very cool title, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, it teaches some false doctrine about Christian growth. In the words of one reviewer, the thesis of Jesus plus nothing equals everything is that the only thing required for your sanctification is to think more about what Jesus has done. That's it. Jesus plus nothing equals everything for your sanctification. So Chavidjan can say, as he does on page 137, that in terms of sanctification, quote, there is nothing left to do. So the reviewer says, you know, the whole time I'm reading the book, I'm asking myself, so what's he going to do with Colossians 3, 17 through chapter 4 and verse 6? Now, let me just stop. Remember I said these letters of Paul, including Colossians, are often divided in these two major sections. First section, he tells us who we are in Christ, what our position is, all that Christ has done for us. And then in the second section, here's how you're to live in light of that. Chapter 3 and verse 17 is part of that section where he's saying, this is how you're to live in light of that. And this reviewer is saying, as I'm reading this book, I'm wondering, what's he going to do with that part of, of the Bible when he says, since he says that there's nothing left to do? And he goes on to say, there is more to Colossians than the first half. What's going to happen when he gets to the places where Paul tells us to be sanctified by actually fighting sin? And wouldn't you know it, other than explaining why those verses are, according to Chavidian, powerless to sanctify you, he doesn't deal with them at all. He says you really do need to look at his scripture index in the back of the book to believe me. He deals with almost every single verse in Colossians. Except the ones that have commands to obey. Now hear this, friends. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. It means that the work to give us a relationship with God is completed. But when God grants us that relationship, he then calls us to live in that relationship. And so... The Puritan writer John Owen said this, we need to consider our own duty and the grace of God. Some would separate these things as inconsistent. If holiness be our duty, then there's no room for grace. And if it be an effective grace, then there's no place for duty. But our duty and God's grace are nowhere opposed in the matter of sanctification. For the one supposes the other. We cannot perform our duty without the grace of God. That is his enabling power. Nor does God give us his grace to any other end than that we may rightly perform our duty. In sanctification, friends, what we are doing is reacting to God's acting on our behalf. And he tells us in this life that he has called us to live, in his grace, enabling us, giving us the power to to do it. He tells us in 2 Peter that his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. So here's a good way to think of sanctification. God plants within the believer the seed of holiness that sprouts, that takes root and grows and bears fruit. The corruption, the remaining sin within us tends to choke and slow the progress of growth, but there will be growth. 
God plants this seed within us when he regenerates us. He plants that seed and that seed will grow. Sin still remaining will slow that growth, seek to choke it out, but there will be this growth. So in order for us to make progress in sanctification, we must recognize and respond to two things. That we've been given a new identity, indeed, but also that we now have a new master. And I've asked you to turn to Romans 6 for that reason. We need to recognize these two things, that we've been given a new identity and that we have a new master. Verse 3. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, as Paul, who wrote this, has spent five chapters in Romans explaining the origin and effect of sin and Christ's provision for it and the reign of grace in our lives. In all of those five chapters, he has not asked, don't you know, until now. While he's elaborated on all that's involved in Jesus' sacrifice for us, he knows that his readers have at least some idea about that. But here's something that many of them, like many of us, perhaps do not know. And what is that? That we've been baptized into Christ. Now, baptized literally means plunged, immersed, saturated. When you're baptized in water, we do so in this way of immersing, because it's what the Bible teaches. And by the way, not only what the Bible teaches, the Bible commands that everyone do that. If you have not been baptized, our next baptism is in a few months. You need to see me about scheduling an appointment to see if you're a candidate for that. And so it's what the Bible teaches and the Bible commands it because it symbolizes what has happened to us spiritually. Verse 3 tells us we were plunged into Christ. The Holy Spirit unites us with what Jesus Christ did in his death and his resurrection such that we have a new identity. The Holy Spirit makes a connection into what Christ did 2,000 years ago to your life and my life today. So much so that verse 8, if you look at verse 8, says, we died with Christ. And as a result, you are not the person you were. You are not yet what you will be. But thank God you are not what you were. And the Bible is replete with claims to that effect, that you have a new identity. You are no longer who you were. Famously in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. Colossians, you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And then Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This new person, then, that we are, has a love for God in his heart. It's not a perfect love to be sure, but it's a real love and relationship and experience with God, not not just a transaction on a ledger somewhere in heaven. And that's what so many people think of with the gospel. The gospel ends with, I've accepted Jesus, and now I'm just biding my time until I go home. No, that time is a sanctification time. God working in us and us responding to his work in us. And verse 4 in Romans 6 says, We're not only united in his death, but as Christ was raised to life, we too, quote, may live a new life. 
That is, it's not just that our sins are forgiven and we're dead to the old way of life. We've also been given a new life. And these are inseparable because they come from a relationship with the same person, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is not divided. He cannot be separated. When you have one part of what he's done, you necessarily have the other because we're brought into union with him. And that's why Ephesians 1 says this. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Life in Christ, friends, is not just turning over a new leaf or making a decision. Life in Christ is a whole new life. Can you say that you have that new life? If not, then you are like Tom and Sandra who have a commitment, but not a life. And this should be our primary understanding of who we are. Our identity in Christ. Our standing in Christ. That we are now new people with a new identity. That should be our primary understanding of who we are. Not circumstances. Isn't it the case that most of the time when you meet someone or you're introduced to someone, you say, hi, my name's Ken, and they say, well, tell me about yourself. And when you tell them about yourself, what do you tell them? You tell them about your circumstances. Well, I'm married. I've lived lived downriver for 53 years and lived to tell about it. (laughs) And, And I've got, you know, two kids and so on. You tell them, I've got, here's my job. This is what I do. It's all about your circumstances. Now, hear this. If those circumstances are negative, then that may dominate your thinking about your identity. How many people have you met who the first thing out of their mouth, especially after it first happens, is, well, I'm divorced? Or I'm an alcoholic? Or I'm laid off? And that kind of mentality fixes one in the circumstance. Or even if the things, the circumstantial things by which we identify ourselves are positive, these are things that can change career, family, hobby. And so our primary identity needs to be in that which cannot change and that which is most important. And that is that we are a new person in Christ. But the problem people face is that although they are in Christ, it sometimes takes a while for their feelings to catch up with that new reality. That's not surprising. Old habits die hard, don't they? Colin Smith, who I mentioned earlier, gives the illustration of a child who's been mistreated in an orphanage and he's now taken into a loving family. It may take time for that child to begin to enjoy his new relationship and actually begin to live and to flourish in it. It may take time for that child's feelings to catch up with the new reality of his new home and his new position. But I ask you, How long have you had a relationship with God and are you enjoying your relationship with God? The second thing that we must recognize, if we're going to make progress in sanctification, is not only that we have this new identity, but we have a new master. Verse 12 of chapter 6. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Verse 14, for because sin shall not be your master. As with the new identity 
And the illustration of the adopted boy in his new home having to get used to that new identity. So to the fact that we have a new master may take some getting used to because the old master's sin is still around. I mean, think of it this way. What if you had worked for someone for 30 years and then one day you're made the department head and he's now working for you? (laughs) Some of you who are employed now are thinking of all the revenge you would exact. What if that happened? You know, you've been working for this person and then, you know, the CEO comes and says, you know what? We like your work. We see you as the future. We're going to make you the department head. And now that guy's working for you. One thing that's likely to happen is that you've been so accustomed to listening to his demands that you're sometimes going to find yourself following him rather than the other way around. In order for you to take the department in a new and better direction, you need to stop consulting the old boss and recognize that you have authority over him. You know, the same is true in the Christian walk. You've been so accustomed to consulting the old boss, the old master. But you've got to recognize he's no longer the boss. And that you've been given authority over him to go in a new and better direction. Your new position should result in a new way of living. I mentioned at the beginning those three married couples. One couple that had no commitment, an open door relationship. One had commitment that was, but that was it. And the rest was an empty shell relationship. And one had a growing union that had weathered storms and had trials, but was more and more becoming a shared life of joy and intimacy. That's precisely the picture of the Christian in sanctification. Trials, hardships, setbacks, yes, sin. But moving more and more into a shared life of joy and intimacy. You see, friends, Christ did not come into the world to offer some kind of temporary encounter and then leave us alone. He did not die on the cross simply for a distant legal transaction that would be an empty shell that just leaves you with a Sunday commitment, show up at church. He came into the world to bring you into a relationship in which you would cease to be the person you were and in which His life would energize you in a whole new existence for the glory of God. That's what sanctification is. And that's the work that Jesus is doing presently in His people. And so that fifth line on your insert, sanctification means that God's grace now in sanctification delivers us from the practice of sin. The practice of sin. And gives us a new life. Your take-home truth with that is that those who believe in Jesus are given the ability to live a new life. He empowers us. He enables us to do this. Now in our final moments... All of this talk about cooperation and the work that we must do can sound, and perhaps it does sound to you, like it detracts from the Bible's emphasis on salvation by faith alone. But understand this, friends. The work we do is faith work. It is initiated and motivated and carried out by faith. You see, the sanctification in which we cooperate, in which we actually work, is by faith because faith, I've told you numerous times over the years, faith is believing. 
To have faith means to believe. And sanctification is by faith because faith is believing and we only obey. We only do what God tells us to do if we believe certain things. Let me list some of those. You will only do this. You will only cooperate. You will only do this work if you believe, if you have faith, that God is worth it. Even though he and you are devalued by the world. You'll only obey God if you believe God is worth it. Even though both he and you are devalued by the culture and the world. You will only obey if you believe that it's better to obey. Even though sin is pleasurable, the Bible tells us, for a season, obedience is better. And you believe that. You will only participate, or excuse me, cooperate in sanctification and obey if you believe that that obedience is rewarded. The Bible tells us that. Did you know that? Even though that obedience is incomplete. If you believe that my failure to please God does not jeopardize my standing before God, then I won't be so down when, not if, I sin And I get back up and I participate in the joy of obedience. Now, for some of you out there, you're you're weighed down with sin. You came into this room weighed down with sin. And now you hear me talking about cooperating, obeying. And you know and you feel keenly that you're not obeying. I want to give you some good news. If you care about that, If you're convicted about that, then that's good news that God, the Holy Spirit, is at work in your heart. Thanks be to God. And you should take this opportunity to thank God that he loves you enough to track you down and say, stop moving in that direction. And so God is saying that to you then. And when we pray, you know what the Bible says, that when we sin, that we are to confess our sin and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, friends, this is the Christian life. That's the Christian life. you got the old boss. <laughs> he wants to tell you what to do. But sin shall no longer be your master, says God. I've enabled you. I've empowered you. I've given you my grace. I'm at work in you. Now you work in response to that. And victorious Christian life models of sanctification harm people. You know what I mean by that? There are these models of sanctification that are not what I've described here and what The Bible absolutely describes. Instead, there are these high points in the Christian life. You know, I heard a particular speaker, man, and he just electrified me. And I went to the altar and I laid my all on the altar. I went to this big rally in a stadium. You know, I'm not against rallies and stadiums for the most part. But I am against it if it seeks to replace the model of sanctification that the Bible teaches. Friends, these are not high point experiences. The normal Christian life is just mortifying sin, putting to death sin, to death sin, availing yourself of the many graces that God gives us and empowers us to carry out in obedience to him. We may limp into heaven being wounded in the battle and continuing to fight. But the Bible teaches we will make progress. And we will arrive safely home. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are and what you have done.
We thank you, God, the Son, that you have come and you have done what we couldn't. And it is done. It is finished. Those are precious words for us on the cross. And now because of the work that you have done and you have finished, you have brought us into relationship with yourself. Lord, you want that relationship now to flourish and to grow. And you have enabled us now by your grace to cooperate in that. Thank you for that grand privilege. And thank you, Lord, that you did this in my heart and my life when I was 19 years old. And now in these years since, although I still struggle with sin, thanks be to you, I am not what I was. From that very moment, I had a new identity and I had a new master. And I thank you that increasingly my master, the Lord Jesus, has taken control of my life. Lord, this all redounds to you because none of it is possible apart from you and your enabling grace. So, Lord, thank you for your grace at work in us, not just in the past, but right now, every moment of every day as your people. And thank you, Lord, for the security that we have in our relationship with you, though that when we fall, not if we fall, we know that we are still children of the Father. We come to you and we confess and we repair to the grace and enablement that you promise to provide. Lord, we want to glorify you in our lives. We ask you to grant us continually as you have the enablement and grace to do that this week, this month, and for the remainder of our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.